We're going to continue this morning in our study of First Peter. If you'd like to turn there, we're going to be beginning with First Peter, the second chapter. First Peter, chapter two, um, beginning with verse thirteen. And in in this section of First Peter, Peter addresses the idea of submission. The the concept that we hate to love, that concept of surrendering our will, surrendering our pride, surrendering our personal desires, ultimately to the will of God. And before we, before we get into 1 Peter, I'd like us to take a look at the divine example of submission. The divine example of surrender and obedience. And you don't have to, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Luke 22nd chapter. Um, beginning verse 39. Luke twenty two thirty nine. 39. Coming out, he, that is Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like the great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is where the bar has been set. This is the divine example of Surrender and submission. This is the definition of submission. The the point at which Christ was willing to suffer the just for the unjust in order to accomplish the will of the Father even though he knew that the will of the Father went against everything of the flesh of man. It went against the, the desire to go through the suffering, the humiliation, and everything else. And yet he, as our divine example, set aside his personal plea to the Father to say, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. To come to that resolve in the garden was what the Father would intend us to come to that resolve in our own lives. Because once we come to that resolve, the battle for the most part is over. When we come to that resolve where we are willing to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, there we have the crux of the battle. 
the battle that takes place in my heart, the battle that takes place in my mind, just as it did with Christ, and to come to that point to where he was willing to say, not my will, but thy will be done in obedience to the Father, so that you and I could be here today. So that is, that is the, the divine example, that's where the bar has been set, for us to understand what submission looks like. Now, Peter breaks this down into three different categories. The first is submission to municipalities, that is, those in government. The second, he addresses the issue of submissiveness and obedience concerning masters. That is our workplace. The third is our submission and obedience concerning, yes, marriage. Now, let's begin. (laughs) Now that we got the the fine print all taken care of. (laughs) <laughs> marriage is the last one okay so we're gonna we're gonna hold that till the end okay first peter chapter 2 verse 13 therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Paul, in in the 13th chapter of Romans, talks about this this need to submit to the governmental authority. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 13 chapter says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. But if you do, but if you do evil, be afraid. We'll get back to the, we'll get on with this marriage part here in a minute. <clears throat> Depending on the tone. Um, I got a little something to share this, that just happened this morning that, that might brighten your day, but we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. They are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This idea that we are to be obedient and submissive to the government authorities also comes with a qualification. That is, 
as we surrender and submit to those who are in positions of governance over us, we are in effect demonstrating our obedience and our submissiveness to God. If we believe what Paul here says, where these, these are put in place by God, they have his stamp of approval on them, whether we voted for them or whether we did not vote for them is, is irrespective. So therefore, in our willingness to be submissive and obedient to the government, we are demonstrating our willingness to be submissive and obedient to God. As long as that submissiveness to government does not compromise my obedience to God. And there are cases where that, there are submission, submission amen. Long live submission. There, there is, there is and will always be until Christ comes and sets up his kingdom to where he is the, the divine supreme king. We are going to have earthly municipalities who from time to time are going to demand of us as believers that which is going to go against our conscience before God. And in such case, if we go back to Acts, when Peter and the apostles, they were taken and they were beaten um, and they were, they were thrown in prison and told to stop preaching about this Jesus. Stop preaching about this gospel. So they're thrown in prison. You remember the, the miraculous they came out of prison and that night and the chief priest the next day tried to find them and they found them in the temple and they found them in the temple doing the very same thing that they just locked them up the day before, which was preaching the gospel. And the high priest said, didn't we just beat you and tell you that you were to stop preaching this Jesus, this gospel? And Peter's response was, whether to obey men or whether to obey God, we will obey God. In other words, when, when the choice is between obeying the governing authority and obeying God, if those two are at loggerheads and it has to be one or the other, then it has to be the other. I cannot violate my conscience before God in an attempt to honor man. And with that also comes the possible consequence. The possible consequence being if the government says you will do this and I say I cannot do that with a clear conscience before God and the government says well then this is the consequence for your choice we go back to the divine example. The divine example was the consequence for Christ's choice in his obedience to God was suffering, torture, hanging on a cross, and eventual death. So we too, if we are going to make the choice to either obey men, if that collides with my obedience to God, then I must choose to obey God 
and accept the consequences of being disobedient to man. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is with God's. They tried to paint him in a corner. They tried to, they tried to get him to say that they didn't have to pay taxes. Paul says the same thing. What is due the government is due the government. What is due God is due God. And it, it comes incumbent upon us then to make that choice and to know what that choice needs to be. Second, submission to masters. Now, there's, there's a different social setting today than there was a couple thousand years ago when Peter was writing this. Um, he talks about the relationship between servants and masters. And we need to reduce that down. We need to reduce that down to where it, it is, um, where it meets with today's vernacular. We don't, we don't really have servants. We don't really have masters. So let's bring it down to where we live, which is employers and employees. Well, let me read. 18. Servants. So you put in employees in your, in your Bible. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. This the idea the idea here was in in the social setting there was in many cases the master had absolute authority over the servant and the servant was considered to be almost personal property of the master. Paul is saying to the servant who is a believer, if you suffer because you have wronged your master and you take that suffering patiently, it is to no available because you had it coming. It is that suffering, again, this example of Christ, the just for the unjust, it is this example that when these servants were treated harshly or punished harshly when it was undeserving of them and they suffered it patiently, that was commendable to God. And Peter goes on to say, 21, for, for to this, in other words, to this, not, re, not paying back reviling for reviling, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This suffering that Christ endured 
the stripes that they talk about, that Peter talks about, the, the, the suffering, the scars on his back from the beating, the scars on his hands, the scars on his feet. Peter says that by those scars, by those stripes, and he uses the past term, you were healed. Jeff has talked a couple, for the last couple weeks, about that which is and not yet. That which we, which has been accomplished for us by Christ, that we have already realized and that which we are yet to realize. And it's concerning this healing. The healing that was accomplished for us as a result of the stripes that Christ endured, there has already been the healing in our souls from the sickness that our souls formerly had to deal with. That sickness, as a result of sin, that sickness has already been healed. There is a, and that has been realized by us who are under the blood. There is yet a healing that we have not yet realized, but we will. And that is the healing when our bodies are resurrected like the glorious resurrected body of Christ, when our healing will be complete. Our healing is already complete as far as has been accomplished, yet we have not yet realized it, but we will. There is a day coming when the bad hips, the bad shoulders, the bad knees, all the football injuries and everything else that have taken their toll are going to be no more. They will be no more. We, our bodies will be resurrected as whole and holy and immortal and healthy forever as the spirit of Christ that lives within us. For the first time ever, our bodies will be a reflection of the spirit that lives within us. Chapter 3. Verse 1. The relationship of submissiveness in the marriage. Now, before, three, three words, the first three words, wives, like what, four words, like six, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, and we're going to stop right there. Before, before we jump to a conclusion and say, Wives say, ah, oh, here we go again. Or husbands say, okay, hon, listen up. This is for you. Before we jump to a premature conclusion, I want to take this through its conclusive end here. Because the, the conclusive end of the thought here may surprise us. Okay. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that is, if some believing wives have unbelieving husbands, okay, that even if some do not obey the word, that is, husbands, they, without a word, that is, 
without a word of preaching from the wife, they may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Back to Proverbs. The last chapter in Proverbs, chapter 31. Chapter 31 of Proverbs is written by King Lemuel. And the very first line says, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Now, these are not the utterances of King Lemuel, probably messing his name all up, but these are not his utterances that he came up with in and of himself and told to his mother. These are utterances which his mother taught to him. These are not utterances which he sat his wife down, the queen, and said, this is how it should be. These are utterances who the king's mother taught to the king concerning what a godly wife ought to look like. Beginning with verse 10, 31 verse 10, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. 16. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. And then look at this line. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her. 
in, in Revelation, throughout Revelation, Jesus tells John as he's revealing to John. He refers to the bride of Christ. Um, you don't have to look this up. I'll just read it. Revelations 19. And this is John. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lord. So here we have this picture of the godly, righteous woman and all of these attributes that Peter talks about and that King Lemuel talks about that he learned from his mother are all the character, characteristics, abilities, industry, integrity. All of these things are the picture of what King Lemuel calls or his mother calls a virtuous wife. We, as believers, are the bride of Christ. So that all of these characteristics that King Lemuel is talking about, and all of these characteristics that Peter is talking about, are not gender specific. They, they are as inclusive to the male of the species as they are to the female of the species. Because we, as the bride of Christ, ought to be exemplifying all of these characteristics that the scripture talks about that, that exemplify a godly woman, a godly wife. Because it is this godly wife that is going to meet her godly, or a godly bride, for better terminology. This godly bride who is going to meet her godly bridegroom, and that day is almost here. Amen. That day's almost here. Amen. It's just around the corner. And there may be a day coming in this country, Couple weeks ago, Jeff talked about we prayed for those believers, those Coptic Christians in Egypt, who are daily losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. Do not think that that is an impossibility for us. There are young people down in Roseburg not long ago who lost their lives because they professed to be followers of Christ. It wasn't by the government's hand. 
but don't discount that that will, can never happen. Finally, Peter, he ends this with a note to husbands. Verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. And it comes with a caveat that your prayers would not be hindered. There, Peter, Peter is, is depicting what the husband's role and responsibility and, and person should be. And it is the very person of the bridegroom. It is the very person of Christ himself. And so we have the two halves of the marriage here being addressed within the marriage that is yet to take place soon, which is the pure bride of Christ with her pure husband or groom and the picture of what those both look like. And Peter mentions addressing husbands, addressing believing husbands in this relationship, that there is the responsibility to deal with them understandingly, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel, and being heirs together. That is, there is, there is a oneness and equality in Christ that there is an equality in Christ wherein the husband and the wife are equal because they have become one flesh. They are, they are two people, yet they are one. And so there is... There is this anticipation that even the fullness of that is about to be realized. Where the oneness of the bride and the oneness of the bridegroom are about to physically be joined together so that the very face of the bridegroom is going to see the very face of the bride for the first time and then throughout eternity. Our, our obedience, our submissiveness is the evidence of the hope that we have that this union is soon going to be realized. As Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, we too through our suffering, through our obedience, we demonstrate to God that we are living in the hope that soon we are going to see His face. And my prayer this morning is that not one person would leave this morning without that hope that one day soon we're going to see Jesus face to face for eternity. Right.